0: Hello listeners, you're listening to Law Talk, part of the Law and Legend Storytelling Podcast Series. Welcome to our second Law Talk episode. In these episodes, we're discussing the lore behind our tales and the creative decisions that we made when telling them. It's been a while since our last episode of Law Talk, so when we met we had a lot to cover. For that reason, we've decided to split this edition of Law Talk into three parts. In part one, of Warlocks and Will-o'-Wisps, we'll be discussing our four Halloween episodes. Bjard's Leap, The Wife of Usher's Well, Jack of the Lantern and The Warlock. We've heard from some of you that the Halloween episodes are now some of your favourites, so we hope you enjoy hearing us discuss some of the lore behind these tales. In part two of Parrots and Porridge ones. We tackle some of the lingering questions we had about some of the stories in series one, particularly the later episodes. We revisit the buried moon to talk about issues in classism and attribution in folklore studies. Seb and I puzzle over the existence of porridge wands, only to discover that we both have one in our kitchen drawers and we consider the unusual role of the parrot in Lady Isabel, leading us to delve into a rich history of folklore and folk stories about parrots. In part three of Lisa and Lady Isabel, I sit down with a friend and follower of the podcast, Lisa Belila. Lisa has been a supporter of the podcast right from the beginning, in giving us early feedback on episodes, but is new to the world of folklore and storytelling. In this part of Law Talk, Lisa tells us what it's like to listen to stories on the podcast versus live storytelling and gives us her thoughts on the female characters in our episodes and how they are represented in traditional folklore narratives. All of that coming up, but first, welcome to part one of Warlocks and Will-o'-Wisps. Hello. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the second uh, Law Talk episode of the podcast.
1: Law and Legends podcast, yeah.
0: Tonight in Sheffield it is raining so much that uh, Seb turned up
1: <laughs> drenched to the skin. Yeah, and I'm uh, slightly uh, apprehensive about the possibility of, we- like, of whether or not I'm going to be able to get home. <laughs> so that's how wet it is here. Um, I, I feel like I could be more poetic about that. The rain pours off every surface and joins the oncoming river as we and and you get the idea. You've you've seen rain before.
0: Well somebody um somebody posted one of the Sheffield four sailboards one arc a thousand pounds. Um so that's how epic it is. Uh thousand pounds for an arc though, that's that's pretty good value. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. To carry two of every animal. Two of every I mean, it's gotta be pretty big. So yes, uh, tonight's episode is tentatively titled Of Parrots and Porridge Wands. Shall we start with the Halloween episodes? Let's do it. They're fresh in our minds. Uh, It's been a while since you last heard from us. In this capacity anyway, we've released quite a few story episodes, but not any discussions.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry you've all missed out the melodious sound of our... Discussing voices.
0: So, uh, do you want to start?
1: You you did the warlock. I so. did. Well, I've this the the listener comment. Yeah, a friend of mine was uh, telling me that he really liked the episodes, particularly Bayard's leap and the Wife of Us as well. Are short and quite punchy, mm. like they 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 accomplish what they what they set out to do very like quickly and neatly, which is um, which is good. He was also saying that um, there's a good sort of theme of uh, arrogance and hubris being the downfall of the characters. So um, in Jack of the Lantern, you're sort of rooting for Jack in a kind of odd way because he's beating the devil at his own game. He's being more (laughs) of an asshole than the devil is. And yet, ultimately, his successes are his own downfall because that is why he has to wander the world forever, because he's locked himself out of heaven and hell.
0: Yeah, I think you do have to, because there are several different versions of the tale, and Mm. you do have to kind of double down on the the wicked aspects of his character, otherwise you do end up rooting for Jack, I feel. Um, Especially some of the American versions of the tale, they um several of them don't include the three wishes Mm. um and are just about jack uh tricking the devil um with a drinking game Mm. um or sometimes he meets the devil in the road and you're told that jack is uh, an evil man or whatever but he he appears more like a bit of a scoundrel and Mm. you're kind of rooting for him that's why i added in the stuff about the the shipwrecking which isn't a part of the original sources okay, okay? but sometimes jack-o'-lanterns are called hobbity lanterns mm. and there is a a, a folkloric practice of hobbity being used to shipwreck people by hanging the lamp mm. on on a donkey a lame donkey so they're kind of like is <laughs> going up and down <laughs> as it walks um and creating this bobbing motion. I think the thing that I was reading said, this probably isn't true, basically because sailors aren't that stupid. <laughs> um, but there is there is one other thing that, that I didn't include in the tale because it is very, very dark, but it was almost too dark for me, and that's right. the fact that sometimes Jack has a wife in these tales.
1: I feel like this isn't going to go well.
0: Uh, well, he beats her, you see. Yeah. Um, on the other hand the same source did say that she beat him all the time as well and that they're actually equals in their perfidity <laughs> so so it seems they there's like they beat each other black and blue and later on she helps him to torture the devil um, <laughs> but it's still still i I I just excise
1: that yeah part i mean of the there there I'm are sure. there are certain topics that require a large amount of sensitivity and if you're su- sufficiently committed to the tale that you want to tell it in its in its entirety, then it's worth it. But sometimes <laughs> it is worth just sort of gracefully bowing out and drawing a line somewhere. Yeah.
0: And and sometimes sometimes details make a story more complex needlessly as well. Because mm. you have to spend more time explaining, oh well this was Jack's wife and this and this and all that kind of thing. So
1: Yeah, particularly as Jack and his wife beat each other and then they torture the devil, it comes across quite the lib um mm-hmm. if you don't sort of go into it quite a bit and then at that point yeah that you're quite right it would it would end up quite a bit longer um he was also talking about um the uh what's it called the warlock Right. He was saying that um the there's a particularly british appeal to the kind of villainy that um uh, lord solus displays because there's all that um, veneer of politeness mm. of, oh no, don't worry. You know, it's absolutely fine. <laughs> Why? I will, Of course I wouldn't be angry with you. Whilst all parties to the conversation know that this things are not as they're being portrayed to be. And this, this person is manipulating and scheming. Um, and it's that, 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 um, instinctive, uh, not, uh, desire to not break the politeness of the situation. You know, it's it, it, it there's a the, the, the stereotypical thing of not wanting to to say, hey fuck off you jackass. <laughs> um, well, but of course, you know, in, in the actual story there are um, more concrete reasons why the protagonist can't do something like that. But Nonetheless, there is a sort of more appeal to the sensibilities in that way.
0: No, I I enjoyed the warlock. Do you want to talk a bit about the ending? Because, um... Yes. You changed that a bit, didn't
1: you? I did. Um, And so a thing that I have had comment about is that people really like the Macbeth um, sort of echoes. And as far as I can see, because the tale of Lord Solus predates um, Macbeth, it may well be something that helped to influence Macbeth in some way. But Macbeth is done in a more sort of... Uh, you get these prophecies. Nothing can harm you until all Burnham Wood marches on Dunsinane. Uh, no man of woman born may kill you. And these things turn out to be true in ways that you wouldn't really expect them to be true. And so the, the false sense of security that Macbeth has lulled into is his undoing but in the source material that i saw for lord solas for the warlock he's told these these same things uh beware an oncoming tree until threefold rope of sifted sand around your body twine but although there is an oncoming tree in the uh the, the actual the marching trees the sifted sand doesn't play out in in a satisfying way because they try to bind him with ropes of sifted sand. they.
0: Because at that stage, he's using a magic book, isn't he? Yes. Which he brought back with him from Fairyland, okay. apparently, yeah. that was supposed to have been yeah. written by the Scots sorcerer, Michael Scott, who was a real person, but was only rumoured to be a sorcerer. Um, and he's actually supposed to have taught Lu- Lord Sulis himself. Ah. So, so by a somewhat circuitous route... Michael Scott seems to have trained Lord Sulis, written a magic book. The magic book's ended up in Fairyland after he's died. Thomas the Rhymer's has picked up the book and brought it back with him. <laughs> and then he tries to use the magic book to bind Lord Sulis on the beach. Yes, um,
1: but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, and so in the end, there's a lot of, you know, sort of fancy footwork of trying to make it work. And then they go, oh, what the hell, we'll just boil him in lead. And admittedly, they boil him at a stone circle, so it's got a certain amount of poetic uh, connection there. But um, it has nothing to do with sifted sand. And so I wanted to find a way where the things that are said are actually true, just like in Macbeth, in ways you wouldn't expect them to come true. And so having him boiled alive in molten glass had the advantage that that is uh, a product of sand. I didn't go into it. I thought it was sort of the idea of, you know, telling everybody that they poured a cauldron of molten glass all around his body so that the ropes wrapped around him (laughs) was possibly a little bit too graphic.
0: Yeah, or maybe they were...
1: Poles they use for glass blowing,
0: you know, I yeah, and smearing them around him. And
1: I thought, really, that doesn't sound like what they do. They probably would just throw him in the, the the molten glass. Yeah. And but you know, if if they then took him out, then the glass solidifies and wraps around him. So it's like a a glass coffin.
0: Yeah, um, exactly.
1: In a yeah, terrifying I, sort
0: of way. I love the idea. I suppose I do think it takes a little bit away from the legend burning him at the local stone circle seems to been a, a, a pretty big and important part of it. So I don't know if maybe I would have said they brought the glass maker from his workshop
1: or something. I, just, <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought about that, but then I was like, <laughs> what a faff. Can you imagine trying to explain to the listener why it was they had to take the glass workshop en masse <laughs> and transport it to a stone circle just in order to kill this guy. You could also
0: um, argue that the sand ropes don't bind him, but maybe they do twine around him. So, you know, he conjures the ropes and they do, like, wrap around him, and he, but he breaks out of them. So mm. the, in some ways the prophecy is still intact. One of the folklorists who found the tale said that that part of the legend's supposed to explain... Um, you know, you get worm-like tracks in the sand. Mm. You know, it kind of settles, and all of these strange things. Presumably, in the locality where where the legend's based, um, I don't know enough about beaches to know how common it is. Probably fairly, because so people are like, "Oh, that's those are the ropes of sand that they're trying mm. to use uh, to um, to bind Lord Sulus."
1: Nah. <laughs> <laughs> what I find bizarre about that is that there aren't really beaches nearby, they were about <coughs> to transport him quite away, because right. Hermitage Castle is just outside Kiel the Forest. It's it's a reasonable distance to the sea. Like, they'd be riding for a few hours.
0: Are there any lakes or anything around there? Yeah,
1: I mean, Kiel the Water isn't that far away. Um, maybe the beach is at Kiel the Water. Um, but the other thing that I did with that story was to um, a reversal in the character that's focused on, because it's Solace that receives the most attention in... Certainly, the Walter Scott version that I was working off, um, and I thought that actually, if we were having a Halloween story, we want some peril, we want some danger, and at that point, his his victim seemed like the obvious choice, and um, so there was the in 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 that version, Branksome's brother. Is the one who sounds the alarm and brings the king's men to him, um, but I thought that was an unnecessary character. I thought, and that that's why I chose May as the um, the one around whom the action would be focused. Which which I think did 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 pay off because she plays a very bit part in in the in the original, original version. Ballads. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah um, I thought that part of the tale worked really well. We did have some comments that the the voice work that you've done on the uh, the red cap. I can't hear what he's saying, so I said alright, I'll fix that. I re-recorded the voice. If you haven't re-listened to the tale since I uploaded that, then we'll, uh, we'll play the new voice now and you can tell me if that sounds any better.
1: Habitur, yeah. <laughs> bad, life, while you hold the life of me. Gates, lance and arrows, sword and knife, I shall your words
0: be no forged steel, nor hempen band shall ever your limbs confine, till threefold ropes of sifted sand around your body twine. If danger do press, knock France on the chest with rusty padlocks bound. Tear away your eyes when the lid shall rise, and listen
1: the sound yeah did you read much about uh red caps I read a certain amount the um one of the things that i felt about the red cap in that story was that it was disappointing that you didn't get as much exposure to the creature as you might have because that the red cap gets its name because it Dips its hat into the blood of its of its fallen enemies. That's something that never really comes up in the story. The red cat advises Solus, but never never comes out. And the only other involvement it has is to, you know, break the charm when when Solus looks tries to look at it. Um, I wanted some sense that this was a ferocious creature that would tear your heart out and eat it. They're said to haunt. Um, abandoned castles in scotland um so to warn you against you know deciding to go and have a play around in uh, <laughs> an old castle at one o'clock in the morning don't don't go there because the red cat will eat you
0: well that's one of the ways that these tales thought to work actually isn't it like mm. um, a lot of the legends about water demons like jenny green teeth and things uh, most people say they were tales told to kids to keep them from playing near water yeah so maybe the red cap's the same for you know don't don't, don't go climbing up the tower face so, yeah. because you might be a red cap or catch the lannisters uh, otherwise
1: <laughs> yeah. the um well the the thing about not playing near water um be, i can't remember have i mentioned the fact that in in like past ages lots and lots of people couldn't swim and so mm. water was just a terrifying element that you didn't want to be going anywhere near. Mm. It's one of the reasons why there are so many watered beasts that you, you don't fuck around with.
0: I like the idea of the red caps being uh, fort sprites. Mm. Uh, One guy, William Henderson, writes that the red caps resembled a short, thick-set old man with long, prominent teeth, skinny fingers armed with talons like eagles, Mm. large eyes of a fiery red colour, gristly hair streaming down his shoulders, iron boots, a pike staff in his left hand, and, of course, a red cap on his head.
1: (laughs) They were rumored to be similar in appearance to the Dunter, but the Dunter apparently largely just makes unpleasant sounds, and you know is is quite grouchy. <laughs> Whereas um, the, the castle the...
0: poltergeist. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so it must have been unpleasant if you didn't know whether what you we were facing was a red cap or a Dunter, <laughs> and then it turned out for the worse.
0: There's a theory that red caps. Um, along with those other ones that you mentioned, the Dunter, or there's another one called the Powery. Ah, um, yeah. There's a, a theory that they were the spirits of victims sacrificed on the foundation stones of the castles mm-hmm. by the Picts who built the first castles in those sites. Yeah. Um, so that's quite it's, it's quite... It's quite a cool idea of why they're hiding in these castles which humans have built. Yeah. Um,
1: Gives them such a strong tie to it.
0: And there's another case sort of of um, fairies or fae also being another manifestation of the dead. Mm. um, Which
1: which has come up a few times. One of the things I did try and build into that story was a sense that whilst the red cap was sort of doing Solace's bidding it sort of viewed itself as the true lord of the castle. That <laughs> it, it, it really, you know, only sort of tolerated Solus for as long as he was useful to it. Um,
0: yeah, but Leiden and Scott mention actually that... Um, so you're saying that there isn't much side of the rapacity of the red cap in the tale, but they mm. do have this little bit where they say that, um, you know, the chamber that Sulis locked him in before he departed the castle and sort of left him there and apparently the the chamber itself is supposed to have sort of sunk down into the earth mm. so that it's still there in the ruins but nobody knows where it is but they said that if you're to insert a branch into the crack at the door and pull it out then you find it stripped of its bark oh, so those rapacious talons
1: are yeah. are in there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> um the the only other thing i wanted to say was that um uh, this the, the the legend of of Solus as as this uh, sorcerer, um, it's there's an element to which so a lot of it is impossible because Solus wasn't living in Hermitage Castle in the point at which the tale happens. He's in imprisoned in Dumbarton Castle um, at the uh, request of Robert the Bruce. Um, I wonder whether the story actually is a form of propaganda. Right. Yeah. In order to discredit this man who's plotted against the king, say he's a dark and evil sorcerer mm. who um, you know, consorts with vile demons. Um, instead, you know, he's probably just a reasonably ordinary nasty man who wants power for himself. <clears throat> I had options as to how to pronounce his name, because I could have gone with Sulis contacted a scottish friend of mine for the closest i could get to old scottish pronunciation and and she didn't know so i felt like that gave me carte blanche to (laughs) use largely whatever and i i also found recordings on on the internet where people said it and it i found both solace and solace and i thought solace has a more sort of poetic edge here there's a sort of foreboding to his name so yeah
0: well, the, the history of Hermitage Castle um, is, is quite long and bloody in itself. Yeah. Um, some, some of the highlights, there was one of the next owners, Sir William Douglas, apparently imprisoned. It says, a comrade. He, he imprisoned a comrade there and starved him to death. <laughs> As you do to your As comrades. As you do
1: to your comrades. That's, that's how I treat my comrades.
0: Um, Mary, Queen of Scots, married the Earl of Bothwell even though he was probably involved in murdering uh, one of her previous husbands uh, and the Earl of Bothwell was the Lord of Hermitage Castle uh, he, he ended his days uh, apparently going insane in another in, in prison at another castle, uh, Dragsholm. his nephew Francis Stuart was then arrested during King James's witch
1: hunts but you know what all this means don't you what's that? well that the red cat did remain within Hermitage Castle and did keep advising all of its next rulers sowing the seeds of evil.
0: The uh, the sound design for Bjarne's Leap was a lot of fun. Um... (laughs) <laughs> the kind of crazy thing with these uh, with these shows is you find yourself looking around for noise of a dying horse <laughs> uh, on on sites and uh, and coming up with nothing you then have to uh, come up with something yourself so mm-hmm. our, our dying horse sounds were groaning camels um, mixed with kind of like slow down effects
1: so that it, <laughs> it kind of like oh. became a rattle yeah <laughs> um, but yes, you, uh, I find it I mean I suppose dying horse yeah. is is a bit of a unique sound. Um you, you only get it once with the horse. Um <laughs> but um I do find it interesting that groaning camel is is a thing that you can find more straightforwardly online. It was well it was
0: basically just just a recording of camels and the noises that they make which are quite groaning anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and yeah, Beard, Leap was a good one. I can't remember how I first came across it, but I found it on uh, this website called uh, Mysterious England and Ireland. And um, there were quite a lot, what's interesting is there's quite a lot of pubs called Beard's Leap. There was Ooh. one here in Sheffield as well. It closed down, unfortunately, as so many pubs are these days. Um, yeah. But uh, it just kind of showed that at one, at one stage, the legend must have been fairly well known uh yeah out and about uh for pubs to
1: have named themselves after it yeah i do wonder sometimes whether the pubs are going to be named after things that are resonant in the public's imagination or whether it's just you've got a niche interest loud (laughs) republican who uh i'm just going to call it this
0: (laughs) yeah well we're quite far away from uh uh North Keverston, Lancashire, here in Sheffield. That's but we, true. But we did get a Biards Leap. Um, Alice yeah. I suppose of the uh, Jack of the Lantern, I was quite interested. I was quite, um, I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to track down the original sources for the Jack Lantern myth. Mm. Uh, because there wasn't much about it apart on Wikipedia, apart from the more recent. It seemed more Americanized versions yeah. of the tale called, uh, which tend to be called Stingy Jack. Um, but after eventually chasing down the sources in lots of different books, uh, books that are online. Uh, just to be clear, I wasn't. I wasn't. I uh, wasn't trapped in the library, um, but. Um, I actually found I'd just been looking in the long, wrong place. Uh, those original tales were all in the entry for Will of the Wisps. Mm, um, yes. So um, you know, originally a Jack of the Lantern and a Will of the wisp
1: were essentially the same things. And then this was the first time I learned that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I I didn't realise that, and that's and that's interesting. And the fact that some people. Rather than Will of the Wisps as a class of spirits, that there was actually sometimes a tale of Will yeah. of the yeah. Wisp. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you uh, you learned so much uh, looking at these things. Absolutely. Did you make any uh, uh, jack o' lanterns this this Halloween?
1: Uh, I really wanted to, um, but a combination of things and largely disorganisation meant I didn't couldn't but um what did happen was that the neighbors had made many and um in order that we might be able to i'm thinking of trying to think of a word advertise the fact that we had sweets <laughs> to, to neighborhood children all of the words that i was coming up with were lure and entice and i thought <laughs> i can't really say that um but um yeah so that, that, that was that was very nice we, we usually do carve pumpkins but, um, but not this time. I did wonder about carving a turnip, but um, it did it's strike hard. me that... Yes, yeah, it turnips are, are much harder than pumpkins. And actually, the Irish, when they arrived in America, must have think they, must, they struck gold with one. <laughs> they can ditch the old put- turnips and start carving these things.
0: Yeah, in our tale, the, uh, the devil uh, rather swiftly... Hollows out of turnip, and uh, that must be a special devil power. Because uh, I think when when you look at the uh, photos online of uh, turnip jack o' lanterns, they look much more sinister. But that's basically because people had to sort of <laughs> slash the eyes in, in into these turnips, um, so they look uh, they look uh, they look much more horrific. Mm. Um, but yeah, a good a good tale and and again before I started looking into it, I you know I never realised that there was a tale of Jack of the Lantern. So uh it's a, there was a it's pub a story
1: in Loughborough called Jack of Lantern. Um so Loughborough was where I went to school. And um yeah, it had a much, much more brief version of that tale, um that you could read on the wall the outdoor wall of the pub, which is quite nice really. I don't. I don't think I ever went in that pub. It's a shame. I did go in the Hobgoblin pub around right the corner though. So. You might have met the devil at the end of the bar. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: That's quite possible. I thought we might talk a little bit about the the wife of Ush as well. Something my my friend mentioned. Um, my friend's name is Pierre, by the way. I'll credit him with the, the comments <laughs> that he's made. But um, it's, it's, it's quite um, sort of bleak and nihilistic. Not, not, not entirely, because obviously you're, you're looking in a sort of very humane way at the, the grief of the mother. But it's kind of un, unrelenting. There, there is no solace for the grieving mother. It has a, an echo of the, the story in Harry Potter... In the tales of Beagle the Bard, the, the Deathly Hallows, mm-hmm. the the stone that is used to summon back the dead. And the dead that come back are always sort of detached and removed and you can't ever really properly see them or touch them. And, you know, you sort of spend all your life's energies trying your best to uh, to connect with them and you gradually wither away and die yourself, and it's a similar thing with the widow, where the 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 she wishes so much for her sons to come back that they do, but nothing that she can do regarding her dead sons can ever make them as alive as her real living daughter. Mm.
0: Who she's sadly neglecting. Yes, um, which is. Uh... A sad comment on on a true fact, you know, because in many cultures where, you know, like sons are more sought after and loved than daughters and that kind of thing. uh, You know, you do actually find that mothers will love their sons more than their daughters. um, Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, um,
0: definitely. uh, Yeah, one one of the things that I find about this tale is that I like... Like, so the dead come back, but they don't come back as, like, you know, zombies that try to kill you. Yeah. The demands that they make on the living are, you know, just common everyday things, you know, feed me, give me something to drink, go to bed, and it's the impossibility of that and the kind of, like, the unnaturalness of it Mm. Um, that sort of forms the the core of the tale i think that as you know said the this idea that it's nihilistic we have a a particular reaction to her as a modern audience one of the elements of the original tale it goes out of its way to tell you that she's a wealthy woman Mm. and so when she utters this curse saying essentially that she won't believe in god or or the Holy Ghost or any of these things, you know, almost professing a kind of atheism. Mm. Um, there is that idea of hubris. She um, She's used to have having everything her own way. Yeah. Um, and that's why she can't abide by the loss of her sons. Yeah. Um, but, of course, the original tale is told in the context of there being a heaven that they go to. And so the unnaturalness of grief that the grief is kind of inappropriate in one sense because Mm. they are living on in heaven Mm. and you do have to release them whereas
1: we have a i think a much more sympathetic view of the woman and her grief yeah because that that is one of the things that comes up and it's it is a motif that you you see in uh folk traditions in through in britain the unquiet grave, the grave, the, the dead that cannot rest because the living won't leave them alone. But um, the thing I like most about the tale is quite how sort of chilling it is to have, you know, she wishes for this thing to happen and gradually up the hill walk three dead men. And it reminded me a little bit of, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a story of the monkey's paw where uh a husband and wife wish for um enough money just to pay off their mortgage i think it is it's is quite a modern retelling of that, that sort of thing and um then uh, they they get a phone call saying that their son has been killed but the life insurance policy is just enough to cover their mortgage and then they then <laughs> the dark yes and then the wife wishes for the son to to return and you get or you don't get any real other explanation than a figure then comes walking towards the house and he's just outside the door when I, th- I think the the husband then wishes it all away uh i I can't remember exactly but but essentially wishes that that this would stop um and you do get this sense that whatever form the sun is coming back in Mm. it's not going to be nice for the people who um who are there for it and it it does have that that classic be careful what you wish for
0: Yeah, the original, uh, the original tale, um, the wife loses her sons to plague, but I chose to set it in the context of the First World War, mainly because I think it was the centenary when I first came across this tale and when I first told it in a particular setting, you know, in sort of contemporary memory, that is one of the sort of the most powerful and kind of resonant contexts for mothers and children and death and its kind of, you know, sort of implacable nature. Yeah. Um and there there are there are two different versions there are several different versions of the tale. Uh they're folk songs in fact, um, originally and um if you haven't already you should definitely check out the uh the Lore and Legend playlist for the Halloween episode versions of um The Wife of Usher as well are, are, are great to listen to. Um Mm. The version that I used for the episodes, um, I say that they return near Christmas, mm. um, but in several of them, in fact, they return on Martin Mass, which I wish that I'd recorded in the original now, because not only is Martin Mass apparently old Hallow Mass or the old Halloween, um, but it, uh, Martin Mass, the Feast of St. Martin, takes place on the 11th of November, which which is Armistice day. day. So, Which uh,
1: then has a fun, yeah,
0: it's uh, it's a, a poignant echo, um, yes. of that. So,
1: uh, yeah, the um, uh, the thing I was going to say about the first world war is that, um, there is a sense in because the first world war was the first time for a long, long time that so many people had died in a war that that Britain was involved in that we had been involved in conflicts um over the last 100 years and of course some people died but it was seen as a chance for glory um and so a lot of people tried very hard to get their um children in, into the army um who who wanted their their children to to have status and uh, opportunities and that there was there is a sense in which the first world war represents in british cultural history a moment of realization of really what war is about and the the real human cost and that there was when you went round villages in england at that kind of time you suddenly started seeing things going up in people's windows telling you how many of their sons had died because there was a cross that said the psalm and then there was a cross that said Passion Dale, and it that you know it, it became uh, because of how many people from everywhere had lost relatives it became unavoidable everywhere you went was this reminder that death could not be escaped and that if if you went in yeah uh i think that's which I think is why it actually works very well as a way of telling this this story
0: you've been listening to Lore Talk part of the Lore and Legends storytelling podcast series part two of this edition of Lore Talk of Parrots and Porridge Wands will be available to download tomorrow Music in this episode was composed and performed by Robert Bentle. On November 14th, you'll be able to hear our next guest episode, where short fiction writer Sarah Pearl shares her unique take on the legend of the last wolf in England. We'll also be releasing our first bonus episode of the podcast, The Legend of Humphrey Head. This episode won't be on our main podcast channel. Instead, it will be available to download for free from the Law & Legend website through Gumroad but we will be requesting that you do consider a donation for downloading this extra content. I hope that you've enjoyed part one of this edition of Law Talk. Thank you for listening, Story Folk.